I'm Paul Williams, and you're listening to The World is Wrong. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Don Juan de Marco. <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andrash Jones. <laughs> and I'm the other host, and my name is Brian Connolly. What, what kind of accent <laughs> that is that? It just sounds sinister and <laughs> yeah, scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, to a villain. Yeah, he's uh, coming out of a know, crypt somewhere. I'm, I'm not a romantic uh, Spanish hero. It's, I'm sorry. it's hard to make Brian Connolly sound <laughs> like a Latin lover. <laughs> Uh, I know, me, me and Billy Connolly have the same problem wherever we go. Yeah. yeah. We're, we, yes, we're here to talk about about Don Juan DeMarco, the film. Uh, but uh, actually, you and I aren't going to be talking about it in this episode. In this episode, I ended up having a conversation with the director, Paul Williams, who we discussed in our episode about the November Men. Uh, he's the director of the November Men, as well as many other excellent films and i interviewed him as a bonus episode around the film the november men and you can find that interview on the page devoted to the november men at the website the world is wrong podcast.com and in talking with paul at one point he mentioned that this is one of his favorite films and i was like whoa i you know it's one of those world is wrong moments where a film that you liked and you didn't really think some that much about but someone you respect says oh no this is one of my favorite films and you're like oh well I, I i probably should go back and and check out this film again and he was right it's it's a pretty excellent film now i'm going to talk about it a lot in this episode but you're not going to be uh well you you got to go off i don't know you're you you got uh, a film to to cut <laughs> and you got things to do but before we get to the conversation with paul what is what's your take on Don Juan DeMarco? Oh, it's interesting. It uh, it was a movie that I avoided for a very very long time, and I just didn't have an interest. It just, I just in my mind, it was going to be some mushy romantic '90s comedy that I had zero interest in. And then my wife was like, "You should watch the movie. It's really good," and I did, and it's great, <laughs> and it fits in very well with kind of that era of of Johnny Depp that sort of like Benny and June like that all that post Edward Scissorhands pre Pirates of the Caribbean when he was sort of a character actor trapped in a handsome man's body uh, doing these uh, fascinating weird kind of takes on movies What's like Eating Gilbert Grape Arizona Gilbert, Dream yeah Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas just movies that are really challenging but still very entertaining and funny and just sort of like that kind of what made him sort of this cult star back in the day. I mean, now he's the biggest star in the world, or one of being, you know. But like, this fits in with that. I for some reason thought it wasn't going to. I don't know why. I think the title, or wasn't there like a Brian Adams song that went with it or something? Yes. <laughs> and, and I remember just being like, ah, I'm fine, I don't need to do that. But then I watched it, and it is really smart, very well written, and the acting is great. Like, this is good Marlon Brando. It's not... Marlon Brown of phoning in. No, not at all. I don't know if he ever did that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Faye Dunaway is great. And it is 
genuinely uh, moving and also genuinely, genuinely romantic. Like this, it would be a great Valentine's Day movie. And it also deals with mental illness in a very serious way, but also a movie that's not a total bummer. So I really like, really like it a lot. And I'm really glad that you guys are talking about it. I think that it's a movie that kind of not a lot of people talk about anymore or forgot about. <laughs> so I'm glad we're shining a light on it here. But a lot of wives remember fondly. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, great. Well, I'm. I'm sorry you're not going to be able to participate in this conversation, but I'm really glad that you were able to you know, share your insight into the into the film, and also I'm glad that you dug it as well. And uh, now let's go to a clip from the film, and then my conversation with Paul Williams. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Why don't we move on to something else? What do you have in mind, Don Octavio? Why don't we talk about who I am? Yes, I know who you are. Who am I? You are Don Octavio de Flores, the uncle of Don Francisco de Silva. And where are we here? Well, I, I haven't seen a deed, but I assume that this via is yours. What would you say to someone that, um, that said to you, this is a psychiatric hospital and that you're a patient here and that I am your psychiatrist? I would say that he has a rather limited and uncreative way of looking at the situation. Look, you want to know if I understand that this is a mental hospital. Yes, I understand that. But then how can I say that you are Don Octavio and I am a guest at your via, correct? Yeah. By seeing beyond what is visible to the eye. Now, there are those, of course, who do not share my perceptions, it's true. When I say that all my women are dazzling beauties, they object. The nose of this one is too large. The, the hips of another, they are too wide. Perhaps the breasts of a third, they are too small. But I see these women for how they truly are. Glorious. Radiant, spectacular, and perfect, because I am not limited by my eyesight. Women react to me the way that they do, Don Octavio, because they sense that I search out the beauty that dwells within them until it overwhelms everything else. And then they cannot avoid their desire to release that beauty and envelop me in it. So to answer your question, I see as clear as day that this great edifice in which we find ourselves is your via. It is your home. And as for you, Don Octavio de Flores, you are a great lover like myself, even though you may have lost your way and your accent. Shall I continue? Yeah. Don Juan DeMarco from 1994 is one of only two films directed by the notebook scribe Jeremy Levin. In it, we find Johnny Depp at the peak of his Deppness, working with Marlon Brando in one of his final film performances. It's the story of a pathologically romantic young man who believes he is, and may actually be, the real-life Don Juan of literary fame. After a dramatic suicide attempt, Depp's Don Juan 
is committed to a mental institution where he is overseen by Brando's Dr. Mickler, who finds that he is drawn into and energized by the young man's story. It's an odd little film with two wonderfully weird performances at its center. And now, let's go to my conversation with Paul Williams where we explore this magical little film about sanity and its opposite. Okay, hello, Andras. Hello, Paul. Are you ready to, to dig into this fantastic film, which is well, Don Juan DeMarco? I, I don't like digging, but maybe we can sail over it. Oh, that's perfect. That is more than perfect. That definitely helps focus me. I pick a card. I'm, you know, I'm a hippie kid. I'm not a kid anymore, so I guess I'm just a, I'm just a hippie. Uh, uh, although... Culturally, how could I be because of my time and place? But uh, every, every morning I pick a card, and today I picked the Prince of Cups, which is all about sailing over the waters. So that's perfect. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so I'm, I figure what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to tell you my story of Don Juan DeMarco, having just watched it and like a, a recount the movie for you, almost as if... I wore a madman in an institution recounting it to uh, a psychologist or a professor or a godfather of some kind. And then I want you to tell me, then I want you to tell me why you suggested, or you didn't really suggest this film. You told me that this was one of your favorite films and it made me realize that it was a film that I loved, but had never really given attention to that love. Like I loved it at the time and then I kind of forgot about it. And now going back and looking at it as, uh, an, as a I don't know as an adult man as a, as opposed to a young actor watching movies, I have a totally different response to it, and it is a totally worthy film. Uh, I mean, in terms of on to be on anyone's favorite list of films, and it uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you. But are you are are you okay with me just sort of telling you the story of this film you love first, and then we can go from there? Sure, that was very much Penelope Gilead's uh, technique when she reviewed films. She t- oh, tell us about the, okay. This is great. Digressions are awesome. T- <laughs> fill me, fill us in, the listeners and I, uh, on who this person is and what and what this uh, approach is that you're discussing. Uh, well, Penelope Gilead, the late Penelope Gilead, uh, she wrote the screenplay for Sunday Bloody Sunday with John Schlesinger, mm-hmm. but she also alternated six months stints with Pauline Kael at the New Yorker, and was the, a film critic six months of the year. And her reviews were very much the retelling of the story of the film with her own comments. Ah, okay, that's great. Uh, so let me tell you this story. So, first of all, just to put this film in its time and place it's 1994 and it's produced by Francis Ford Coppola and Fred Fuchs as part of as an American zoetrope film and you know the rap on American zoetrope is that Apocalypse Now and then One from the Heart kind of killed it but when I look at uh, the Wikipedia there are so many amazing films that they produced and all the time that supposedly this, this outfit was a failure. 
like really interesting things beyond just what Coppola is doing, like a film like this or a film like Barfly. I did. Or, this is one of my three favorite films of all time. Yeah. Uh, he, he, what, he produced uh, No Such Thing, a film by Hal Hartley that I absolutely adore. Robert Duvall's Assassination Tango. Really, uh, De Niro's The Good Shepherd is a, is a Coppola, is a, an American zoetrope film from this time. Which I was just saying, which is the best film I've ever seen about the CIA. Yeah, yeah, I know you think so. And I, and it, I take that. It's another film that I'm looking forward to going back and rediscovering. He did tough, they did Tough Guys Don't Dance, which is a film that we are definitely going to be covering on The World is Wrong in the future. Um, I know, it's just, it's one of the, the world is wrong about American zoetrope. If the rap is that, I mean, maybe he had to sell, who cares about all that part? The fact is that I look at this list of films and that is anything but a well, film. Well, I think, I think you should consider that that is about the time where the, worldwide commitment to the religion of capitalism uh, covered the globe. I mean, China, India, everybody agreed that uh, their religion was capitalism and that their money was God. So, of course, atheists after that get a bad rap. <laughs> uh, so connect the, connect the dots for me there. In well, the terms of, like, who's the, the atheist uh, in this scenario? Coppola. Right. And the people who give it a bad rap are greedy little egotists. Got it. Who okay. Think that, who yes. think that they are, uh, uh, that you measure some art in relation to money. Uh, you yes. know, it reminds me of Leonard Goldenson, who used to be head of ABC. And one day he said to me, uh, you know what a good movie is? And I was trying to think, which Fellini movie is he talking about? Maybe Truffaut. <laughs> and he said, I'll tell you, a movie that makes money. This is the president of ABC. And so you have to understand, you may laugh at it, but now everybody agrees with that. Yeah. Regardless of, of what country they're in. Money is the measure of importance. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Well, as uh, as... Don Juan DeMarco, played by Johnny Depp in the film, would say, and it's one of my favorite lines, well, I would say that someone who sees the world that way has a rather limited and uncreative way of looking at the situation. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is a beautiful, uh, it's such a great film. I've, 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 Johnny Depp was an actor who I was act actually in competition with as a young actor i mean i wasn't at the time but i had that feeling because what well, not even in competition i used to audition for 21 jump street all the time and i would and i would get all the way through the process and they'd say no he looks too much like johnny we got to move him like so literally the way of looking like him kept me from getting a job on this show <laughs> and so for so at that time i had a, a chip on my shoulder as a young person might but very, it didn't take long, well before this film, I had been won over. But this was around the time that I was realizing, I'm not in competition with this guy. This guy, I'm just, I, I'm, yeah, he's a great actor. I'm a fan of great acting. And yeah, I'm on, I'm on his side. I'm ready to see where he goes. And he's taken me some really exciting places as an actor. But this one is really a special like movie star performance i, I actually 
to pre- prepare for this, I think, oh, I saw Errol Flynn played, uh, played Don Juan. I'll check this out. And <laughs> five minutes into the Errol Flynn version, I had to turn it off because that, no offense to puffy old movie stars, but that puffy old movie star, you know, sort of pickled post-trials version of Errol Flynn can't hold a candle to this version of Johnny Depp in terms of just screen charisma and being able to pull off a role which is pretty damn ridiculous. He brings a lot of soul. To, I mean, the two of them, the whole thing brings bring a lot of soul to it. So let me just tell you. So basically, this film shows up on our doorsteps from American Zoetrope. And, and oh, and it's written by Jeremy Levin, written and directed by Jeremy Levin. And the only other thing I think, well, there's a couple other things people might know him by, but he wrote the film The Notebook. So he's a screenwriter who's capable of writing that film. And some of this film feels, feels very written, but some of it also feels very improvised. And the balance of it is great. It's sort of like a great writer-director can do is like, you could tell that he was, he was unprecious enough with his script that if Brando threw in stuff, he was like, uh, yeah. Could I interrupt you for a second? Anytime I'm talking, interrupt away. Uh, All right. Well, it's very interesting to me uh, how intellectuals or people with uh, an intellectual side are portrayed in movies because we're used to seeing, and we call good acting, a total emotional hookup. Uh, And when people have a total emotional hookup, it doesn't feel written. You feel like, the words are expressing the feelings of the character, and you go along with it. But it's a much more interesting thing, and very few actors are smart enough to do it, is how do you play an intellectual, a guy who has actually thoughts or a, a part of his life? Now, we know, yes, if you're a very involved person, you can uh, think as... Uh, in the moment and be quite constructive with your sentences and your paragraphs. But that's not how most intellectuals work. Most people, if they're in psychoanalysis or they're paying attention to things like that, have different modalities of speaking. They have a way of speaking when they're emotionally hooked up and they may have a different modality when they're actually imagining the sentence they're trying to say. We much, we're used to hearing people just talk, you know, and be emotionally true. And we call that great acting. It's very hard. There are very few actors who can do it. It's very funny because Chris Walken gets a whole lot of uh, attention and gets to play a lot of intellectuals on screen. And he doesn't do it well. It's just that he listens very carefully to every syllable he says which gives you the impression that he's quite bright. Uh, yes. So what I'm saying, there is more to Johnny Depp. It wasn't so much that he was hooked up and not hooked up. He was a guy who had a lot of uh, romantic thoughts that he had carefully um, calibrated in his head. Well, let, yeah, so let's talk about that because one of the things that uh, often gets a bad rap in films is the voiceover. And this is a film that is dripping in Depp's voice and recounting the Don Juan story, telling his philosophy of women. You know, I'm one of the producers. 
Oh, I'm on. one of the producers of Badlands. You know that. I, I am. I am familiar with that. We'll that's a film that usually that gets away with a lot. That's that's one of the like when people go after the voiceover, they're usually like, you know, except for and then Badlands is usually one of the ones that is listed as getting away with it. And there, you know, right. there's tons. Yeah, of, yeah. I, I it's one of those things that I get why you don't want to. There's a well, I don't even always get it. I feel like that's one of the just one of the great tools of filmmaking is be able being able to juxtapose an image with the inner monologue of our character. And I guess that's easy, but I guess my point is in this, I love the language. And again, Johnny Depp really sells it. And the film, I don't know if you remember, it opens with him having his quote, final conquest before killing himself, where he seduces this woman in the restaurant of a hotel and does this thing with her, like sort of talks to her about how her, le- how her fingers are like a woman's legs. And as he goes to kiss her hand, he works his way up to performing sort of uh, symbolic uh, cunnilingus on her hand and seducing her in this beautiful, weird... I, I, again, I'm not like only Johnny Depp at this time or maybe an actor like that could get away with all of this and have this be a really transcendent poetic moment. Um, But I did have, there, it does leave one question. Like they go and they have this amazing lovemaking and they come back downstairs and still the people in this fancy hotel restaurant haven't received their dinners. I mean, either he work he works very fast, which is at odds with, you know, I guess my experience, or this is the worst restaurant in the world because they're, <laughs> they've been waiting around for two hours while this woman is made, is made passionate love to by Don Juan DeMarco. It, uh, it's, it, I, it's the kind of thing you only notice, I guess, the third time you watch a movie when you're thinking about doing a podcast about it. So this isn't a criticism. Well, you know, I always think of the film Where Eagles Dare. Oh, you yeah, know, where, with Burton and uh, were, Eastwood. Yeah, where, you know, in one sh- shot they got the hat on, next shot the hat's off. If the story is working, people a, don't notice continuity. Until they're watching it the third time to talk about it on a podcast. Yeah, or they're in film school or something, you know. But if your story's working, that's why they say cutting. You know, when you're young and you're cutting a film, you go crazy trying to make your cuts move slow, you know, really smoothly, uh, visually between frames. Uh, and then as you get older, you see the key is the rhythm of the scene. And if you cut the scene to the rhythms, the emotional rhythms, it's much more effective than a visual, than a smooth visual cut. People don't notice the cuts if you cut rhythmically uh, as opposed to visually. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense as a musician and as a, yeah, the little bit of editing that I've done. This do, this film does give us a a neat little I don't know production design wink when Johnny Depp is the, as the Don Juan DeMarco character is about to kill himself he's about to jump off of a billboard that is advertising uh, advertising the beaches of the Canary Islands in Spain and there's a woman with a mask and it says unlock the mystery and I had not noticed that ever before. Huh. But it's at the but it's kind of where the movie ends, 
it gives mm. us this wink in the billboard, which just uh, again it, it rewards multiple watches, and that and that's when Brando arrives, and his. Uh, so first of all, my dad is a, was a psychologist, and so I right. come to films about psychologist father figures with a certain amount of. <laughs> baggage that is all, all you know almost entirely good yeah i have fond feelings about some very sad movies like equus and ordinary people just because they have that dynamic so anyway the point is he shows up and he talk about, like as an intellectual he is big and soft and but he's treated he's, he's treated by his cop friend as the super shrink so he's brought in for this hard case he's like I don't know the the hero reveal of Brando is I feel like one of the keys to the performance of like he is gonna play this one really soft and you're gonna like it I mean or you're not I like it you know I yeah. I like the the yeah just the softness of this whole perform performance and I don't mean that in a bad way I mean it in a a really just like. I don't know. Maybe it's almost like there is a, a feminine quality to it in that he's a listener. He's a thinker. He is. Which is what a good shrink is. Exactly. Uh, uh, and, and also, you have to remember, I'm sure you know, is the key to working with any body uh, who is, uh, uh, has their own special reality is, uh, is to... Uh, not to position yourself and uh, psychologize about it. It's to listen without memory, without uh, desire, so that you can actually participate with the uh, patient in re-experiencing that stuff again, only now with the, perhaps a larger point of view. But that's, of course, what's so interesting about this movie, because it's highly questionable whether his uh, delusions are actually paradisical and accurate in some platonic sense, <laughs> and mm -hmm. not just and not just uh, a neurosis. Yeah, this is a film that is definitely in favor of what is branded insanity over what is considered sanity. There's a king of comedy quality. Is that no king of hearts, the king of hearts, right? The one where the, yeah. Yeah. Just like that, this, this message. And I'm again, one I'm very susceptible to as, you know, the child of someone who I listen to complain about, you know, I'm sure the same kind of complaints that this character made to Faye Dunaway when he was a younger man. Right. And anyway, so he, but he has this great scene. They have this great scene on top of this billboard where Brando playing the doctor, Dr. Mickler is trying to get Johnny Depp's Don Juan to not kill himself. And he has, a, Johnny Depp has a sword at him and Brando's turn when he enters Don Juan's world up there is again, another one of those things that I think it like, it's just, they all that's done so lightly and so wonderfully that a potentially ludicrous scene doesn't, it doesn't seem overly dramatic. It doesn't seem like they're going for the joke of it. 
it's just but it's it is dramatic and it is funny and it is a totally I, a, a moment I totally buy into, which really sets hey, I the found whole thing my sus- my suspension of disbelief was in a, it was total, even though the story itself was so fantastic. I never didn't believe that I was there and that it was happening. Yeah, yeah. So then this is when we enter the institutional part of the film, which is, you know, the the bulk of this. And the the main conflict is that Dr. Mickler, the Brando character, it's his last week working at this facility. He's, he sees something in Johnny Depp's Don Juan that he's interested in, he thinks he can help. But there's also something slightly vampiric about it. It's like he is he is preparing for his retirement with his wife, Faye Dunaway, and drawing all this inspiration from this young man. And right. it's, it, it mostly feels really wonderful and heartwarming, but there are moments when you can feel that in a different movie, this might be portrayed as sinister, but in this, I think it's just a natural, it feels like this natural thing, and it's part of a... Well, uh, well, well, wait a minute. Now, you have to look. I mean, I found it all quite brilliant. Uh, look at the point in his, he's retiring. Yeah. So it's at a point in his life when he's giving up the generative mode, that time of life when you're supposed to work and make children. And, uh, uh, and we all... It, it, the crisis for most people during that period is whether they're generative or they're stagnant. But when you reach that point where you're retiring and you're much older, it's a different drama. The drama is between that part of your psyche which wants to be generative, what you would call, I don't know, normal or everyday, and your sense of oneness and integrity with nature and with more platonic concepts. Not with uh, Aristotelian logic, but with Platonic notions. So I don't think that uh, it uh, very much depends on where you are at yourself in your life and what your understanding is of the life cycle. Uh, that, uh, and I think the director and author here knew very much what he was doing, in that the, uh, you know, the, in Erickson's terms, uh, uh, you know, Brando is dealing with the uh, integrity versus despair, not generativity versus non-generativity, you know? And, uh, integrity uh, and versus Depp, despair, is that what you said? Yeah. That's great. Which is the main problem for most old people, whether they see themselves as part of nature, part of an ongoing process, they can reconcile themselves with their own death that they have lived and they are going back to the earth, okay? That's integrity. Mm-hmm. And despair is that when you stay in your own ego and you think your ego is who you are and the ego is going to die and you're not going to be... I mean, it's a difference between Spielberg and Lucas. Spielberg is... He is who he thinks he is, which is Steven Spielberg. And he'll go making movies till he falls in a casket. Lucas, bless his soul, sort of realized that he got old, that it was time to stop making movies. And uh, it was time to uh, approach the question of integrity. 
uh, our job is not to be good capitalists till we fall in the grave. So uh, in that sense, uh, it's very much different characters, places in their life cycles, which uh, are portrayed in the movie brilliantly, I think. Uh, but you can't uh, project your particular life cycle onto others, okay? Yeah. You see it, you see it from that subjective place. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I, I can only say from the two places that I've watched it, really, in my life. One, when I felt much more... Well, I guess I still... I don't know. When I watch it, I guess I still relate to the Don Juan character more than to the Dr. Mickler character. Although... I feel like the movie's really about the Dr. Mickler character. And if he weren't there, I don't know if I'd be that interested in the Don Juan character. <laughs> right. Uh, which is just, that's some great actors really just being, and that, that's how, what else is going on. There's some great actors being what seems like very generous to each other. Uh, maybe, mm. you know, maybe I'm projecting that onto it. Well, no, the term, the ter the term generous, which is used in acting is, is fine, but it's also a good shrink is generous. Well, but exactly. And I feel like Brando does that. Like even in that first scene with the cop who comes up with him to up to him, I forget the actor who plays him. He's a, a character actor who works is, is in a lot, a lot of different things. So I'm embarrassed that I don't know his name and I'll probably do it in the end of the show notes so that scene he gives a little extra that's where I felt but like the improv was like I see him working with some of the uh the supporting actors who are getting to do a scene with Brando it seems like and he's right. just throwing them extra bones little extra mm -hmm. lines and little things that so they have a beat and that's what I mean by the generosity it's like uh -huh. You know, at right. that point in 1995, Brando, when he's around, his presence for everyone there is like, you know, the master, the people are, are coming humbled. And he probably has to do a lot of work. That's probably part of the work for someone like him is just to like, hey, get off your knees and let's act, you know? Let's well, go. well, what he actually did do, what he does do or did do was he, he was very aware of who he would be working with each day who is not a star, and he would make it a point to have breakfast with them and just talk to them about what they had for breakfast and, you know, what was going on with their lives. A very everyday conversation. And it's famous. And at the end of the conversation, he would say, hey, let's just talk like that when they turn the cameras on. That's great. Well, that you feel that. You feel yeah. that. This is, it's weird because you read reviews of it and it gets reviewed as... Brando's doing a weird performance or he's doing like it, they talk about the performance as if it's one of those like the way people talk about Brando performances often. But what I see is someone who's really. I don't like understated in the sense of really in like the Meisner kind of sense, like it's just very truth. Everything is casual, even when he's having arguments with people. It's the kind of arguments that. Pe that normal people generally have in professional settings where, right. you know, they, they have to work together. They've been working together for a long time and they know how to talk to each other without getting their nervous systems engaged, even though 
this is the central conflict of the film. Are we going to give this kid drugs? And that should be this heated scene. But instead, it's just like, you know, it's all wrapped in this thing of like, oh, he's going away and they're giving him cake. And and they're doing like so they're going through all that stuff while at the same time, uh, like, I don't know, there's something, yeah, just wonderfully casual about his performance. But even that doesn't quite capture it. Uh, just I guess present is the right word. And you said you're right. It's he's playing a, 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 a psychologist, uh, a, a really but good not therapist. just a psychologist, a psychologist who's at the uh, tipping point between generativity and integrity. Right. Time to take his own medicine. And here, like, so as a synchro, as a, someone who follows synchronicity, I would say, and I've talked to a lot of people who are healers. You probably have, have as well, who say that they're clients are their lessons are their teachers in a way and there's a way that this is about that 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 brando his last it's like the cop you know my last case on the job but in this case his last case on the job is to learn how to love his wife again uh let's talk a second about faye dunaway because i think she's really great in this and i feel like in her later years, she's given some really great performances that are, you know, aren't as intense as some of the stuff she did when she was younger, but that I really, really enjoy. We talked about a, a small part that she had in, oh, what's the name of the film? Uh, the Rules of Attraction with her and Swoozy Kurtz. And there's just one scene where they are just as good as any actors I've ever seen on film playing drunk right. and confused. And uh, and in this, she has this wonderful air. But I'm talking about someone that you probably know. Uh, <laughs> what's your take on Faye Dunaway? Well, I tell you the truth. I think of what John Lilly once said. Uh, my forgettery is getting bigger than my memory. Uh, <laughs> what... Uh, What's what sticks with me for the whole movie is the it's really not the I you know, I've forgotten more than I can remember in that movie, but what I what stays with me always is the interplay between uh, personality and spirit mm-hmm. in that picture. And very few pictures uh uh, deal with that uh, and manage to dramatize it in a way that's entertaining. So I, I don't have much to say about Faye Dunaway because I don't really remember it well. Well, just I'll say, having watched, just rewatched it again for this, the scenes where Brando is working at drawing her out of her shell and trying to draw her into the spell of romance that he is being awakened to with working with Johnny Depp's Don Juan character, that it's just, it's really, it's to me, it's, it's great to see her playing someone who is a genuinely likable character because she plays a lot of tough women who make some mm-hmm. difficult choices to sympathize with. And in this, right. watching Brando just adore her and bring out this 
thing in her. There's there's a scene after making love with Brando that I swear she looks. It should cut. There's, someone should do a cut between that and Bonnie and Clyde. What her postcoital <laughs> scene because I feel like she's just as like Brando convinces me that she is just as beautiful and she is as she was then in a way that is even. I mean, she has the you know no offense to Brando, but she does have the good fortune of being next to Brando at that point in his becoming one with nature, as you might say. Yeah. Right. But, but it's, it's just, they're just beautiful, beautiful scenes. And there's a great scene where they're sitting in the garden and he really breaks down her defenses. And it feels like it's almost an answer scene cinematically to his death Uh scene in the Godfather that instead Uh of retiring into death in the garden, he looks at his wife and says, tell me what's up with you. I just, why did I never ask this? And you see her break down <laughs> and you break down right. and you buy the magic of this movie that this is what this kid right. elicited in him. It's a beautiful, mm. beautiful scene. Uh, but that goes to yeah. the end. Throughout the, the whole movie, it's this great psychological, poetic back and forth as Johnny Depp's Don Juan it basically makes a deal with Brando's Dr. Mickler saying, oh, look, I'll take your drugs, but only after you've let me, given me the opportunity to convince you that I really am Don Juan DeMarco. And after those 10 days, if you still believe that I am not who I say I am, I'll take the drugs. You can uh, do it. You can commit me to this place. But the whole time, He's saying, I'm not really in a psychiatric ward. I'm actually in your villa, villa, and right. you are Don, Octavi- uh, Don Octavio uh, de right. Flores. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. waiting to battle Don Francisco, and my Donna Anya has left me. And this story is what awakens Brando's you know, uh, next chapter as a human mm. being. Right. There's a great... There, this has... I don't know if anyone wrote this line. It does seem like an improv and I like it. Uh, there's a point when he's in a meeting with the other doctors and he says, this kid is bizarro. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard the word bizarro. I feel like, <laughs> but it's great. I love it. I love that that comes out of his mouth and the scenes, like the scenes with all the other psychologists, they're all, it's weird because they're casual and likable, but they're all sort of laughing about their patient patient's dismay and it it's kind of creepy. Um, right. It makes the institution it the institution is represented as creepy, but also lovable, which is I, I know appropriate for the tone of the movie. I don't know if it would have worked if. Well, you know, yeah. you, I mean, just apropos of what you're you're saying, not necessarily the movie, but in my life, I've known a lot of um, you know. High, highly evolved gurus. I've known some remarkably great shrinks and some remarkable actors. And they, they all have something in common, uh, which has an understanding of, uh, on the one hand, emptiness, and on the other hand, uh, great humility and receptivity, uh, and then a largeness that are, is beyond their personality. Uh, and, and in some ways, the 
film itself uh, is looking at uh, that whole problem of, you know, what it, it, are we our personalities? Is a personality a defense? Is a personality as large as we get? Or, uh, you know, can we perceive a larger reality that we're part of? And, of course, in the West, we tend to, you know, we're, we're basically greedy uh, egotists. But uh, there's uh, extraordinary realms uh, that are open uh, when one's not constrained by the necessity to be who they think they are. That's why great actors, you know, are, are great. That's why, I mean, there's really amazing uh, congruity between uh, evolved wise people, no matter what they're doing. Well, the one of the lines that jumped out to me as I was watching today, when he's talking to, when uh, Depp's Don Juan is talking to Brando's Dr. Mickler, and he's like, uh, what does he say? He says, what is sacred of what is the spirit made? What is worth living for? What is worth dying for? These are the only questions. And the answer to all of them is the same. Love. Which <laughs> could be the oneness, the emptiness, what, you know, whatever that one note is that defines all, it is the answer to all of those questions. And this is where the, the uh, this is where, this is where the movie really lives for me. In the end, I'm the kind of moviegoer who likes to see two actors in a room just talking to each other yeah but i i I understand what you're saying but you know that's why uh, i'm repressing his name now but you know kill bill what's that guy name oh uh tarantino Uh, tarantino Tarantino. who's you know he's a you know um you know a great one of he's a great filmmaker uh and he's made some films that are amazing with people just talking to each other but ultimately, I find him, uh, uh, you know, I guess it's something I have with all the Italians. Uh, I'm not that interested in um, murderous opera yeah. as yeah. my constant uh, diet. And I, uh, you know, <laughs> that's their cultural thing. Uh, but there are other cultures beyond the Godfather. Uh and I'm just sorry there aren't a uh, hundred Don Juan de Marcos, yeah. rather than two thousand uh, wannabe Scorsese, Coppola, De Palma film. movies. <laughs> Coppola gave us this. I'm no, just... but Coppola, Coppola is a is a, a different uh, breed. No, no, he's he's a no, he's a true artist, but he he's not uh, he's not quite. He's a wonderful artist. I don't want to take anything away from him. But there is a difference. I mean, if you look at Apocalypse, you know, the first two acts of Apocalypse are, you know, as good as filmmaking as you can do. But the third act of Apocalypse is uh, is not transcendent, as Conrad, by the way, was in his third act, or even Milius in the original screenplay. So, yeah, I'd say, and even Scorsese in Raging Bull, the reason that's such a perfect movie is because, you know, the climax is Bobby De Niro hitting his head against the wall saying, I don't understand, I don't understand. And so 
I guess, I, let me change. It's not Italian. It's Italian-Americans. It's because certainly Fellini <laughs> understood all of this that I'm saying. And I think that uh, I just find endless, endless, endless uh, mafia movies and killing and puff guys. You know, uh, you know, it reminds me of what Jean Renoir said to me. He said, you know, you only have three stories in your in your life to tell. And if you, once you've told those three, you just keep repeating yourself. So take time off and make sure you enjoy your life. And uh, frankly, uh, you know, I mean, the, I mean, Scorsese is brilliant, Coppola is brilliant, and De Palma has made some wonderful films too. But ultimately, I, I haven't learned very much from any of them about anything except filmmaking. Yeah. I, well, I just want to make sure if audiences are just listening to this and haven't listened to our uh, the interview I did with you about your larger career, when you're speaking of these people and these films, you are not speaking just as someone who watched them. You came up as a filmmaker with these folks. You worked on, to some degree as a producer with others of them, like De Palma. And so you're speaking from a place of, you watched the development of this, like the God, it's generally understood. Well, that or I watched the, non, the non-development. No, I mean, actually everybody was making pretty good strides and then they hit their thirties. And in my humble opinion, you know, they didn't grow much in the last 30 years. They grew as filmmakers, but not right. as, I mean, if you, if you look at Kurosawa or Fellini or Bergman or any of what I'd consider my, you know, ultimate filmmakers, it's because not only did they evolve as technicians and craftsmen, but they also evolved as spirits. Are there any directors of your generation, that generation of new Hollywood directors that you feel like has even aligned themselves along something you know close to that uh that idea like that there's someone who's even in that conversation because i I can totally hear someone saying well yeah that's that works for you paul williams but some people are going to be spielbergs and some people are going to be uh, scorsese's and i like tarantino and i like all the, i mean i i like all those directors too but i also totally agree with you and especially in the context of don juan DeMarco. The fact that there are so many more films about that make this Johnny Depp character into a killer, a murderer, a freak. Like, there's so many ways that movies would treat this story much in a much more unpleasant way than this one does. And that this poetic, that the message of this film is certainly better, is it, I don't want to say better, it's a, it is at least as valid a way of viewing the world as the Scorsese view. Well, I go much further than that. I would say that we're talking, in my opinion, people with, uh, with the limitations on their understanding of life and their own lives. And they bang up against it all the time in their movies. So I, would, I wouldn't put this on a... I would say that this is a difference between... Uh, uh, I don't know, uh, degenerate culture and uh, evolving uh, transcendent culture. 
you know, I mean, in fact, uh, you know, we're living in a time of, uh, uh, what should I, you know, we're, people have lost their souls, okay? And they've all, they've lost, the soul is gone for most of these folks. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, yeah. the most of the world, well, the film is called, I mean, our podcast is called The World is Wrong. And most <laughs> of the world that we think is wrong is like, are, is like those, uh, or, or are like, is like the, those doctors who are gathering around that table, just blithely deciding to medicate and lock up this artistic, beautiful, inspirational being. And you're right that like we we are living in a world that is even more likely to toss him to beat him up you know drug him up diagnose him and throw away the key than we were when this film was made in 1994 far more yeah i mean in fact hey i i haven't seen i haven't seen a movie and i mean the only really wonderful movie i've seen uh, in this regard, the, well, there have been a couple, but certainly, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Jim and Andy and the Great Beyond. Yes, you speak about definitely this a lot, one of my, I still that's, need to see it. Oh, my God. Well, there's there. I thought that was a, ab, on, that was on a level with Don Juan DeMarco. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so there are filmmakers, it's just... Uh, you have a hey. Why do we have Trumpers? You know, for two generations we've been you know dumbing down the society in terms of education, and making their lives oppressive by taking a few people taking far more than their fair share and leaving them behind. No wonder they can't think themselves you know out of a paper bag. And uh, you know, you have this is what a society that is uh, has lost its way. And has degenerated, and uh, into a point now where you have three men with as much money as 180 million people, and yet people might get on TV like they do on CNN and condemn all these insurrectionists. Yeah, of course, you we don't want insurrectionists, but you, the thing they don't leave out is the story of their parents, and their parents' parents, and where were they when the Democrats and Republicans forgot about them? You know, they turned into barbarians. But, you yeah. know, uh, the culture has a responsibility and create. you get the government you deserve. And as long as, uh, it's funny, Richard Dreyfus, you know, bless his soul, for 30 years has been trying to get them to teach civics in high school. But uh, the point is that, you know, the American education system you know, for about 40 years, is, you know, they track this private education and high track uh, public education. The rest of the people are warehoused to keep them off the labor market till they're 18 or 19. Uh, and then you're surprised when you have an electorate that's uh, a bunch of morons. You created the morons. I mean, go to go to and go to other countries, other rich countries that don't treat their people like that. It's It's not like this. Yeah. I mean, Americans don't understand. Americans are very, very provincial. They don't really understand that they're uh, that they are a, a very uh, disturbed country. I mean, the people who are, uh, you know, who are authorities on health uh, or interpreting the news are 
have their noses so close to the present that they forget uh, the history of uh, the shrinking of the American mind. But they're really, they're not very impressive people, any of them. Well, I guess maybe we can, like, if bringing that back around to this <laughs> film now, because I do think there is a connection. Oh, absolutely. The notion of mental health is inextricably tied up with, uh, 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 let's call it work and love, which has been distorted into greed and ego. Uh, the sense of balance has been lost. It's now just full out, you know, uh, uh, soulless uh, materialism. In my, you know, on well, the whole. yes, and that is is what the Johnny. I mean, it, again, this film does not take. Yeah, on, Johnny Depp's my hero. <laughs> and I love the character. It implies yeah. it implies that, but it it doesn't it doesn't directly take it on because it's going for selling its poetry more than condemning the institution. Like one of the things right. I think about well, is like, yeah. what about all the other patients in this, in this institution are all drugged up and caged up and, and are with these other terrible uh, professionals. And while well, well, Marlon Brando is hanging out with Johnny Depp in that room, uh, like there's, there's got to be a lot of people suffering in that place that we never see, and of yeah, course but, the film doesn't yeah, show us that. Yeah, it's but not hey, I'm 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 yeah. not a Pollyanna who says you should go help everybody. Uh, I'm much uh, no no. I think you've had a systemic problem for several oh, yeah. two and a half generations, and you're not going to be able to fix it. You know, you don't have enough time because you've ruined the environment in the meantime, which is going to make people even crazier. So in this uh, film, between these two characters, the question is like, who's the crazy one? Right? Absolutely, That's absolutely. That's the essential question. Is it really is who? Like the the climax of the film is when Brando basically says, uh, Johnny Depp asks him who he thinks he is, and he says, mm. "I think you are Don Juan DeMarco." And who are you? Right. And he says, "I'm whatever, whatever the character that he's right, saying right, that he right. is." And then right. he gives Johnny Depp the drugs anyway to take because of the way things have played out timing wise and the movie set this sets this up. And then he does. He takes the drugs. And it's just it's a this moment of sort of cognitive dissonance. And it's like, okay, again, it's one of the subtle, beautiful little tragedies in this film, that moment. And it really, really hit me. And it, it brings up this question of. How do ah, we... But, 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 but how about the ending of the film? You know? Uh, well, when you know, they walk if, out... If you don't take... If, if you don't... I mean, I do remember that ending, which, of course, you know, I, I like to look at the ending as a, uh, as a product of uh, quantum physics rather than uh, uh, delusion. Uh, you know, ultimately... Um, Reality is far more complicated than uh, the one that most people see all the time. And it's uh, it's very unclear to me that uh, the ground you stand on isn't eroded by the film. I mean, I think the film makes it totally uh, uh, what's it, welcome that... Uh, the healthy, what's defined as health, is really a very limited humanity. 
and what is uh, delusional is actually creates a a a, a larger uh, a larger humanity. Uh, so it's very. I love the ending because I think it leaves it. I think that it leaves the audience with a choice. You know, and that choice is, hey, I'm not sure which is right. In fact, you know, I feel like uh, the delusion is right. You know. I'd rather believe in the delusion. Well, that's definitely the point of view that the, I feel like that the film leaves you with is that, you know, it's a little bit funny because Brando has just made this speech to Faye Dunaway about how now it's going to be all about her and what she what are her hopes and dreams. And she's like, I, why didn't you ever ask before? And then they have this great moment. And then he goes to work and Johnny Depp makes his case he it looks like he kind of fools them into thinking that he's the crazy person that they said and then that's why they let him out he stops being don juan DeMarco and just pretends to be a broken kid without an accent or any of the other drama he knows how to muggle his way through the session and then mm. but then brando basically adopts this new kid and they go off to this island and I feel like Faye Dunaway is somewhere in the background being like I thought this was going to be about me this time I'm, why, why, why are we bringing one of your patients on our honeymoon but but it's beautiful right. it's a it's one of the things yeah. again I would watch this movie and on the poetic level it's great and then there's this other level I'm like oh but from the standpoint of this character he -hmm. just told her that it was going to be all about her. She better like Johnny Depp. Of course she likes Johnny Depp because every woman who meets him in this movie falls immediately in love with him because he pays such great attention to them. And, of course, because he looks like Johnny Depp in 1995. Yeah. Yeah. My own experience of life is that uh, women do respond well to... uh, uh, a heartfelt love, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's uh, not just that you have to look like Johnny Depp at all. Probably doesn't hurt, though. I'm just saying. No, I agree with you. I mean, allow me my illusions, because I, you know, I, I all I've got is that I look too much like Johnny Depp to get into Twenty One Jump Street. So, uh, no, it always helps. You know, <laughs> as as Karen Black said to me once. When I, well, I actually would, I, I, oh, this is a fairly funny story. I was walking uh, through MGM and I was a little in the dumps because I'd sort of gotten very depressed about the film business. And I was really in my mind just very actively doing a modern version of the idiot. I don't know if you know the story, but there's the richest girl in the world. There's, yeah, Dostoevsky, the richest girl in in Moscow. And then there's a, a playgirl, and there's a killer, and then there's a saint. And I figured, oh, I had a friend who was a hitman. I have uh, uh, one of my longest relationships with this wild playgirl, and I had another relationship with the, one of the richest women in New York. And I'm a saint. This I can make a make a a very nice money. And of course, the saint ends up insane and and, and yeah. uh, babbling him to himself at the end of the movie, but. Because the rest of the world is where it's at. It, actually, the, the, the similarity between the idiot and uh, Don Juan DeMarco is quite remarkable, really. Uh, because the idiot is about a man with a wonderful heart and romantic uh, vision 
who tries to uh, affect the world and ends up in a madhouse. Actually, that never occurred to me before, but there are, well, anyway, so I was walking through MGM thinking about the idiot, and Francis walks by and says, hey, Williams, you got a movie you want to make? I'll make any movie you want to make. And I started thinking, how am I going to tell him about the idiot and myself and the modernization and how important it was to Freud and his thinking? And, and while I'm thinking about that, he says, oh, you took too long. If you had a movie you really wanted to make, you would have told me. And he walked off. Anyway, uh, then later, this is all so apropos you're saying. Wait, wait, wait this is a, this is a, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> uh, I'm always the idiot. It's great. Uh, it's awesome. uh, but anyway, to finish my story here is, yeah. I, then I was starting to, Karen Black had told me that, you know, come on over. She has money for a film. And I, so I came over and we started talking about the idiot, you know, and, she was very smart, very bright, very good writer, too, and I was all excited. But then after a few weeks, it was pretty clear to me she had no money for a movie. She just wanted to get together. And she said to me, you know, Paul, you're such a sucker for a pretty face. <laughs> a pretty face, well, she certainly had, and a good, and, you know, and a, and a good writer. Uh, she was immensely talented, and she was a good singer, too. But she also was uh, quite a spirit, yeah, quite amazing. Well, uh, so uh, <laughs> I could just listen to you talk about Karen Black forever, but I want to talk about a little bit about, just give a, a, just get your impression specifically about the two stars of this film, because you, uh, you must have some thoughts on Brando. And just in general, this is at the end of, towards the end, I would say the, you know, the final chapters of an amazing, amazing career. Uh, I assume that most of our audience is somewhat familiar with Brando, but when you came on the scene in the, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, he was sort of in the wilderness, but, uh, on, but came storming back and you were around... Th at that time thanks to thanks that. thanks to Francis, right? So yeah, yeah just I'd love to hear your thoughts on Marlon Brando. <laughs> well, uh, what do I know about Brando? Um, going back then, just in general, did, well, <laughs> were you aware of him as you were a kid coming up? What oh, was yeah. your first impression uh, of, of Brando? Oh, oh no, as a kid, no, no, as a kid, I was the son of a very straight English teacher who thought Marlon Brando is uh, an inarticulate bum. Uh, no, it was only later when I started studying with Uta Hagen and Herbert Berghoff and Bobby Duvall was there and John and John Voight, and, uh, you know, that I started to get hip to the acting thing. I mean, I went, I, I, I had actually made my first a series of short films and uh, Ed Pressman said to me, Paul, you really ought to learn more about acting. And uh, I had made a documentary about a French village called the Chanzo while I was still in college. And uh, I came to New York and a guy named Stanley Kaufman, who is the critic for the New Republic, uh, I think, yeah, uh, saw the short and he had it television program then in New York, and he took 15 minutes of his program to show my short and spent the other 15 minutes 
taking George Roy Hill to task for uh, Hawaii, saying how unsensitive it was to the people he was study, uh, take, uh, amidst when he was making the picture. And then he said, now, if you want to see a film that's really sensitive to the, uh, the people and the culture that it was made in, I want to show you the following film. And he showed my film. It was called Shanzo. Well, the very next night, I went down to the HB studio to learn something about acting. And I uh, sat in for a while, and Herbert Berghoff, I went up to introduce myself afterwards, and he had seen the TV show the night before. <laughs> so he thought I was some kind of star or something, another kid, you know, wandering around New York. And so he introduced me to Uta Hagen, his wife. And I spent a year with them. And, you know, Bobby Duval was one of their, you know, was doing a lot of work at the studio and Bill Hickey and uh, some other folks. And so that's where I got my first taste of uh, acting. And then, of course, Duval was also involved with Sandy Meisner, which is John Voigt, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Chris Walken, at Neighborhood Playhouse. And so I got to, you know, I, I, I got, uh, and I, I met, you know, Sandy Meisner came to the set of The Revolutionary and spent a week or so there with us. Uh, so yeah, my real appreciation. Wait, Sandy, wait, wait, back, 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 back up. Uh, so in your film, The Revolutionary, starring John Voight from like what seventy two, and Bob du and Robert Duvall, yeah. and and Robert Duvall and Seymour Cassell. Yeah. Uh, that film, Sanford Meisner was on the set. Well, he came by for a week. Yeah. Because uh, came by for a set to just like to, to coach. That's no, no, pretty, no, not so to coach. no, no, not to coach. No, no, not to coach. No, no. He he came. Coach. It was like a victory lap, you know, that his all his students were doing suddenly so well. Al Pacino had just learned landed a big role. John had just done Midnight Cowboy. Uh, who else? You know, everybody was doing very. Everybody in that one class of seven people. <laughs> You know, they must have learned something from Sandy. You know, what a coincidence. Seven out of seven, huh? Yeah. But anyway. Uh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll let you continue. We're, so, and in all of this, Brando is sort of, you, this is all in, uh, what I just want to point out, to, and I like that you're doing this, to the listeners. So this is all in response to Brando. And you may be saying like, why aren't we talking about Brando? And it's like, Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because... <laughs> Brando hangs Absolutely. over all of this in a way that is I, what is written about a lot, but I feel like is still not quite appreciated. And the way your this story is going, I just want the audience to right, be aware right. of that. Yeah, okay, no, the, the whole level of uh, you know what what do you want to call it uh, honesty and lack of indication, you know. Uh, you know, he set the new the new standard. Yeah. And, Did uh, you ever cross paths with him professionally in any you know any way tangential or not? Not firsthand. Not the, the closest I got to him. No, the answer to your question is no. But at one point, you know that uh, Brando and Jack Nicholson were you know lived together on the top of Mulholland. Mm -hmm. They have uh, three houses up there. And uh, anyway, they had a third house, and Helena Kalianotis, an actress, she was in Five Easy Pieces, 
you know, said the world was shit, filled with crap, <laughs> with Tony Basil in the back seat. Anyway, she used to belly dance on Hollywood Boulevard and start going out into the street and having people follow her belly dance down Hollywood Boulevard. Anyway, uh, Brando and Nicholson invited her to have a house up in the compound with them. And so at one point, uh, one summer, she invited me to spend the summer working on a screenplay with her. Uh, where she, it was a screenplay where she plays a prostitute and I improvised the part of the uh, uh, female uh, heiress uh, with the idea we would give it to Julie Christie. Uh, so I spent a month up there, but I never saw Brando. I saw Jack a lot, but I didn't see Brando. Just roaming around the the grounds? Well, no, I was basically working. No, I was working with Helena, but I was driving in and so, out wait, all the So time. You, you knew Jack pretty well, as you say. I, I, I take the liberty of quoting you. Not pretty. I wasn't one of his great friends. Uh, not, not a great friend, but we knew each other. And... Did you cross paths professionally, or was this all just sort of being in, in the same scene and knowing each other personally? Uh, well, I would say we talked to each other a bit about film. Got it. But as peers, uh, yeah. that's uh, he, yeah, and because he, he had just directed his first uh, film, Drive, he said, and uh, we knew people that were in it together. We talked about it. Well. Yeah, Drive, he said, is a film that does remind me of Dealing, your third film. There, <laughs> There's definitely thematically, there are things in both films. Maybe it's just because I, I'd been talking with you and I watched both in the same week and maybe I just put that together. But would you say that there's any kind of, you, you were in dialogue with him at the time as a as a fellow director do you feel like there's any kinship between those two films, or did you feel like there was at the time? Gee, that's a good question. Huh. Actually, I remember what I thought at the time. I thought he was so much hipper than I was, and I thought his characters were so much hipper. You know, I I felt uh, like he was a real sophisticated guy. I felt like I was just honestly talking about my evolution from uh, a pipsqueak to a minor character. <laughs> uh, sounds like he was your Johnny Depp. What? <laughs> to, uh, for me. That's, that's sort of my, what, what ended up being uh -huh. my experience with, with Johnny Depp. Um, he bought, there's a club I used to play in called The Central. He bought it, called it The Viper Room. And then I couldn't get. Oh yeah, you mentioned anymore. that, right? right uh, not that right. I, not that I don't blame him for that, but it was just again, it was just another. He had he had so many chips stacked against him, and now I, right. now I, I truly love the guy. The first film, not the first film, one of the first films we covered on this film, this episode or this uh, podcast was Mordecai, his comedy, sort of the first really big flop failure that he had, and I love it. I think it's one of the funniest films. He's so good, such a good actor. What's your take on Johnny Depp? Well, you know, for me, you know, there's there's good work, and uh, you know, I think he's a wonderful actor, and uh, uh, you know, very brave, and uh, uh, you know, it, he understands selfishness and honesty, 
and uh, he's also very adventurous and courageous. Did you ever cross paths with him professionally? Johnny Depp? Yeah. No. So he wasn't considered for a role in the November Men? No. No, the November Men was... Who who, who had to cast? John wanted to play one role, Pacino wanted to play the other, and Duval the other. No need for casting. Wait. That's the... That's the, the, the revolutionary... What did you, which one are you talking about? I'm saying the November Men, Johnny Depp. Oh, the November in the, Men. the 1990s. Oh. I th- you know, like, oh. not, there wasn't a as great J- role for Johnny Depp as, in as, as Jimmy Andronica, who was on your show, you know, said to me when I took a print of the November Men to San Diego when the president, uh, when I guess Clinton was down there giving a speech, you know, I was... I brought a, 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 I brought a print with me and tried to uh, tell the Secret Service I had a film about killing the president, and uh, they ought to arrest me. Uh, I couldn't even get arrested, uh, and you know. And then Clint Eastwood a year later came out with the film about the presidential assassination. People made a lot of fuss about. Yeah. yeah, and Jimmy said, "Hey, we're just the shit on Clint Eastwood's heel." You know, if you're out of the larger picture, you're out of the larger picture. You know, it's a big industry. And when you uh, exit that, uh, what do you want to call it, the the grand fiesta, uh, it's a different world. Yeah, yeah. So, And and again, uh, that's reflected. I feel like there's something about, like I feel like this film mostly speaks... Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel it mostly speaks to artists because the what really what Johnny Depp's Don Juan is doing is choosing to live in his artistic vision of the world, which is so much better than the world as it, quote, is, as he would say. And I feel like that's an artistic way of approaching yeah. things. Well, okay, I guess I'm getting a little too far out for folks, but basically I would say as the world as most people find it. Right. With that, uh, not as, as say, the world the as it is. View. Yeah. But I wouldn't say a tug-in-cheek. I would say it with the conviction of a MIT quantum physicist. Uh, you know, there's no question whatsoever that uh, there's a whole lot more to our philosophy ratio than you ever thought about. Yeah. Oh, I again, I that's what I, I mean. I guess so then it does. It speaks I guess when I when I say that the uh, it speaks to the artistic sensibility even most people who can get their minds around the basic essence of quantum physics and the idea that this world well, that we're living is a, in is a scientific illusion created by our nervous systems dealing in a well no a it's not an illusion structure that is Wait, you know, that well, let me just say let, let me say two things first richard Feynman, who i did meet on occasion had a great line he said anybody who tells you they understand quantum physics <laughs> they don't right Okay, I don't really mean that I'm a quantum physicist i'm just saying it's my shorthand of saying that it seems clear to me that 
well, and Einstein said this too, of course, that everything is just vibration. And at different levels of vibration, different things are seen and manifest, depending on the thing that's perceiving them. Uh, and what we're discovering is that, uh, well, yeah, well, here, he's talking about Johnny Depp and Don Juan DeMarco. When they brought a bunch of shamans up to San Francisco to the mental institutions, they found they had a much better cure rate than uh, the shrinks. And this goes back to, I mean, Timothy Leary's original experiments that put him on the map was the was working with psilocybin with well uh, i knew him i did i i took his course in uh neat achievement in greek society at harvard when he was teaching it with albert later ramdas Mm -hmm. and uh there when they were younger they were really just starting to twig on it all as they got older they understood it a lot better yeah but i i guess i'm saying is the when I when I was in high school, I read his book Flashbacks, and uh-huh. he talks about how uh, that with the people that they worked with, and maybe it was Walpole State Prison, State Penitentiary, that yeah. the people he worked with had a much in, uh, decreased recidivism rates for uh, you know yeah. compared to other to other right. uh, years, and of course that's when they shut down the experiment and so i mean right. I, I feel like that's you could almost make this same movie it's almost the like that the story of the walpole psilocybin experiments is one of a successful form of therapy that is quasi questionable that works but it doesn't really work in the system in which it's trying to it's in which it's succeeding like the system doesn't want it to work to succeed but it does succeed right like your shamans at the uh, in the san francisco uh mental where where was that i don't know the exact place i i mean i remember the um the thing you know i just read in the new york times today they they, they're finding it looking at repetitious rectangles and linear and straight lines is creating vast neuroses in the cities because the visual patterns. I mean, I live out here, I've been living in nature most of my life, and there are very few straight lines. Yeah. And when you live out in nature for a long time, believe it or not, you get to see things that a normal mind cannot see. That, that when you say normal, one that lives in the city. Um, so for me, it's a continuum everywhere, and the, the people don't realize how conditioned they are by economics and architecture and uh, and competition. Uh, it really stunts the spirit and stunts the perceptual apparatus. So when you talk about what's healthy and what's not healthy, it's really a very narrow band of agreed-upon uh, health. And that really is ultimately what this film is trying to is trying to get at. Yes, well, not trying. I thought it gets there very well. <laughs> I, I that's why I find it so brilliant about it. I mean, I had maybe it was me, but I just thought it was uh, 
so clear and it's it was so clever in its use of drama to present the contrast between uh, uh, what would you call it between uh, nearsighted materialism and uh, spiritual uh, love. Yeah. Yeah. That's Don Juan DeMarco. Yeah. That's why I love the movie. Oh, by the way, you, I, I, I should have mentioned it during the interview. But, you know, when you drew the card, the way of cups, mm-hmm. you know, the way of card, the way of cups is the way of the heart. Yes. That in Buddhism, there are four paths. There's the way of the gut, the way of the heart, the way of the mind, and the way of the mo. Uh, the, the mind is the pentacles, the gut is the swords, and the heart is the cup. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was, it was, it was apropos. Yeah, it is. It, the, from the king of hearts to, I guess this would be, make that, that would make this film the prince of hearts. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, uh, and Brando... Uh, well, that's so. He's definitely uh, uh, I, what what a God, what a loving performance! I'm so happy we have that one. I yeah, Brando really had to get a heart on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he had to get his heart on. <laughs> Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Have you ever thought about being a sex worker? Or robbing a bank? Or maybe you're bored and thinking of climbing Mount Everest on a whim. If you've got a bad idea, we've got good advice from the people who've been there. Hi, I'm Marty Caproni. And I'm Joe Garrix. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Good Advice for Bad Ideas, right here on the Paperhouse Podcast Network. It will be interesting. We promise. Dear listener, If you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes, scale an octave. Master the scale and you master the score. Well, Brian, what do you think about that talk with Paul Williams? It's good. It's good to have him back. I'm glad that he's, you know, like a, becoming a regular. And it's it's funny because the November Men is such an angry movie. And Don Juan DeMarco is such a nice, <laughs> it makes you feel good movie at the end. So it's good to know that he's not like wallowing in other artists, like bitter <laughs> political things. And instead taking a load off from his own mind to watch some nice things made by other people. 
No. <laughs> yeah, I think Paul would say that. I mean, he, I think he's a. He may be a revolutionary, but if you if you had to pin him down, if he's he, if he was a fighter or a lover, I think he would say that he's definitely a lover, not a fighter. So, yeah, uh, so, I get yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And yet, I'm afraid he may have started a fight, Brian. <laughs> uh, when I played it for you, I... I, it, it seemed it it brought up some issues. Well, I just have a little bit of an issue with the. Uh... Italian American directors having this bloodlust within their genes that they have to, you know, express <laughs> in film. Uh, I don't see Stanley Tucci doing that in the movies he directs. I mean, spaghetti sauce, perhaps, but not blood. Like, okay, I think. No. I think. Then I mean, there's just as many violent movies from Japan, from you know. British Americans, whatever. It's just like it's, it's anywhere. Like a, violence is the world around, and I don't think that it's just specifically, you know, Italian Americans. And also, like Coppola really has only made a small handful of movies that I would even consider violent, like Godfather's and Apocalypse Now. And then this is also the guy who made Peggy Sue Got Married and Jack. You know, like he doesn't have. This, I don't even consider his movies a violent cinema. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't like. I'm a filmmaker who's Italian American. I don't certainly feel this need to have like. I don't like violence. I don't really even like violence in movies. I don't know if I want to direct movies that are crazy violent constantly. Maybe occasionally if it, you know, needs to be for the story. But I don't have to have this like. It's within me. I gotta get it out. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you said that about another group of people, that may come off as very offensive. That, that's all I'm saying. But it's part of this. Uh, and I love Paul Williams. He seems like a great man. <laughs> but, you know, I, I get this a lot. Like when I tell people, like I remember being in line at Costco and this guy looked at me and he's like, where are you from? You have a very interesting look. And I said, oh, my family, I'm, I'm half Sicilian. And his first response wasn't, oh, what a beautiful country. Oh, I heard that's really cool. It was, oh, the Godfather. Yeah, gangsters. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, 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 okay, okay, I get it. But, you know, that's not really, you know, what Sicily is all about. <laughs> so what you're <laughs> saying is that <laughs> maybe revenge is a dish that's just sometimes best served hot. <laughs> Yeah. Or no revenge at all. Maybe there's no... <laughs> no revenge at all. No vendetta. No, it's, it's, it's fine. I have no ill feelings towards it. I just wanted to defend my fellow, you know, Italian-American uh, filmmakers, I think. They get a bad rep for being these violent... Yeah, lo yeah loving a violent guy. I don't, not, not true. Well... I mean, Kundun. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like... Scorsese, Age of Innocence. Is that a violent movie? No. Socially, Maybe yes, emotion it is. emotionally, socially violent. Emotionally, but like, you know, that movie's like PG. Yeah. Color of Money. I mean, come on. Like these, all these people. De Palma, maybe that guy's got a bit of a bloodlust. <laughs> but I don't think it's because he's Italian-American. I think he just is a weird dude. Yeah, so he has a um. weird relationship with his family. <laughs> have you, do you know, have you, do you know anything about De Palma's family relationships? In... Uh, I know that he had a weird thing with his dad. I remember hearing the story of like, he knew his dad was cheating on his mom. So he became like basically Keith Gordon in dress to kill. Like he could set up these little equipment to spy on people. 
and to spy on his dad to catch him in the act. I think that's yeah. the story as I remember it. And which is fucked up. <laughs> according to the Devil's Candy, basically his dad still like his family his his brother is still the favorite son. Like they still are like, <laughs> why can't you be more like your brother? He's like, I'm one of the biggest directors in the world, but you know, but he's a guy you can count on. <laughs> Sounds Sounds terrible. Uh, but what have you done lately? Yeah. <laughs> like, I made the Untouchables. I made Scarface. I made Carrie. Yeah, but like this year. Like, what have you done in this time for this Thanksgiving? What like at the like? What have you done? Your brother's done so much. That's you know. I you know. We all experience that. Oh, believe me. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So, yeah. What I think is what I think is funny is that so. You're such a nice person because, or maybe you're just a nice person when the tape's rolling, because when we talked about this, when we weren't recording this, you seem to have a lot more of a head of steam. Like you were really ready to like go after this idea. But now you're like, oh, Paul Williams, I love you, man. You're the best. And, you know, we're not really I, violent. I I work out. See, is like I work out my feelings like alone. And then I, I, I'm one of those people that will like write an email, then delete it and like really think about it until I work through my emotions to know what what's really going on. I never want to act quickly upon my feelings. Uh, so I think I, I let it out with you. I think I probably had recently found out about um, Chris Pratt being Mario and I was just really mad <laughs> by the state of Italian Americans in the world today. Uh, does, but now, <laughs> does like, I'm tr I'm trying to get my mind around this because Mario, first of all, he's already an offensive Italian stereotype. Is he though? I, I don't know. It's he's a plumber. I can't say, but it seems like I, to me, see, like it's a weird thing because he's a he's an Italian plumber invented by Japanese video game designers. So already you're in a weird spot. But right. he's supposed to be him and his brother Luigi are supposed to be Italian Americans, like hardworking blue collar guys helping to save a princess. And they are making an animated movie where the cast is none of those types of people. <laughs> and it's like, there's plenty of Italian American actors that could play Mario and Luigi. So like, let's come on. Like we already went through the first movie with Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo, both great actors, neither of them Italian <laughs> at all. So, like, let's let's do a, like come on like the, the, get someone from the many saints of Newark to be Mario and Luigi. It's just voice work. Why not? Like let's get these guys in there. Or you know what, De Niro and Pesci. That would be a great Mario <laughs> and Luigi. Let's do it. Yeah, that would be awesome. It's... I'm with you. I, 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 I'm with you. I, I'm. It's an animated feature. It's a, right. It's animated. Yeah, right? it's animated. It's I mean, yeah. As long as they don't have to run like... around and jump and stuff. But I think are these going to have Chris Pratt? Is he going to really talk like in an accent? Like, because in the cartoon, like the TV cartoon from the 90s, he has that exaggerated way of talking. And for all I know, that actor was also not Italian-American or Italian. But um, actually, I don't think the Mario Brothers are supposed to be Italian-American. I think they are supposed to be just straight up Italian. I'm pretty sure. But I don't know. Isn't like. Mario is like the Italian Mickey Mouse. Like, don't take this away from us. Don't give it to Chris Pratt. Give it to Danny DeVito. <laughs> or Stanley Tucci. 
or Ray Romano. There's many great comedic Italian actor, American actors, or, or yeah, literally any of the hundreds of dudes in The Sopranos. Come on, get these people to work. <laughs> okay, well now we're now you're getting some fire. Now you. I'm getting. It's a, I don't mind picking on Chris Pratt. He's rich. Okay. Um. <laughs> um. Yes. So, uh, well, just just to one just to make clear, I feel like like Paul was. Uh, well, you can just go back and listen to the interview if you want to figure out what he's saying. I don't. I think he was. I think he was. I think he. <laughs> Slipped into maybe a, a moment of lazy speech, but at the same time, he was very, it's sort of like, I th- I think he was really speaking about Scorsese and yeah. maybe, uh, maybe yeah. this was something also, this might've just been a scuttlebutt thing in the early seventies. And it might even have been at that time, more of a compliment of like <laughs> the Italian directors <clears throat> just have a more visceral sense of film and they're just closer to real to, to something that's real and that like i don't know something that's yeah. authentic so in a way I, I i totally support your pushback at the general idea and i also <laughs> think that uh you know i think paul probably triggered you more than <laughs> was the one uh sort of putting out this idea that italians uh, are the most violent super predators on the planet and need to be wiped out oh did i say that <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm fine. Oh, okay. We're we're good. We're good. We're all friends. Has anyone ever uh, tried to wipe Italians off the face of the earth? Uh, no. I mean, I'm I'm very ignorant of history. I mean, the Romans are usually the ones starting the problem. Right. So That's what I'm... I think. It's not. Yeah. I don't think so. No, yeah. I think. Well, I mean, I think Chris Pratt's doing a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah. Generational trauma starts now. <laughs> <Italian> <laughs> Let's hold each other and weep. Uh, yeah. Next thing you know, he's going on to be Christopher Columbus. Um, you know, I mean, don't you want like a non-Italian to play like the bad ones? <laughs> yeah, which just dis- distance ourselves from. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if Gerard Depardieu can be a Christopher Columbus, then so can a Chris Pratt. Okay. Um. Well, you know, those are your Italians. Mario and Mar- Luigi. Mario oh, Christopher Chris- Columbus. Any this other great? All, you're you're all not doing I a have. lot for the for your tribe <laughs> here. Can you t- Chef Boyardee uh, and <laughs> No. No, there's plenty. Like I don't need to go into it. Al Pacino, great person. Um Okay. Uh well, uh we are uh we have a great show up for you next week we have a very special guest who's going to be joining us bethany watson of n acquired taste podcast is joining us to talk about jurassic park three. Oh, you ever people like i like that you put a little pause there people are like jurassic park the world isn't wrong about th- oh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a good it's a good one. Please listen to it. I'm excited. Yeah. It kicks off our few weeks of Spielberg. Yeah, we're Spielberg for we're, a few weeks. We'll, we're Spielberging through December. We even though he didn't direct Jurassic Park three, but we're doing that, and we're doing the Terminal, and we're doing Ready Player One, and we've got a special New Year's episode that that isn't uh, isn't Spielbergy, but uh, it's pretty exciting, <laughs> and we'll be telling you about that in coming weeks. Beautiful. 
And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast if you want to remind us of some great Italians we forgot <laughs> or <clears throat> share your insights into the, the movie Don Juan DeMarco. You can also <laughs> find us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast and on Twitter at worldiswrongpod. And yeah, this has been... We did it. We, this it's has been, been great. fun. You know, I feel like I'm a better lover. Do you feel like a better lover <laughs> now that you've spent this time with Don Juan DeMarco? <laughs> Definitely. Do you ever yes. want? Do you, do you ever want to just do that? Try that thing with the trick, the hand trick with your wife, where you just take her hand and you're like, first I kiss your ankles, and then I, I kiss would, your knees, and that yeah, I would, you would never do that. I would never dare try. <laughs> that's that's a good way to get kicked in the head. Would you I like her to do that to you? Yes, <laughs> it's my turn. Yes. <laughs> okay, and no. with that, and with that, people, we just we we have to remind you. I know we're we're laughing, we're having a great time, and I hate to I hate to bring it down, but I I just it falls to me to remind you once again that wherever you are, the world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about you. There are only four questions of value in life, Don Octavio. What is sacred? Of what is the spirit made? What is worth living for? And what is worth dying for? The answer to each is the same. Only love. Doña Julia was my first love. Well, I see our time is up. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.